This morning I would like to address the topic of true worship. The essence of worship is no more clearly portrayed than in an event in the life of Abraham, the man, the only man, who is described as the friend of God in all of Scripture. You may remember Abraham became a father at the tender age of 100. And about 15 years later, God told him to take his son Isaac, his only son, to Mount Moriah and there sacrifice his son, his only son, to God. Without any argumentation, without any hesitation, this great man of faith, Abraham, obeyed the Lord. They were accompanied by a corps of servants when they arrived at the foot of Mount Moriah. Abraham turned to his servants, his son Isaac by his side, his son carrying a bundle of wood for the sacrifice, not knowing that he was a designated victim. And he said to them, you all stay here. We will worship. And then when we finish, we'll come back and join you. Amazing. We will worship. Perhaps you know the rest of the story found in Genesis chapter 22. When they got there, the Lord miraculously provided a substitute. A ram was caught in a thicket and the angel stopped the hand of Abraham as he was following through with this execution or this sacrifice. And the Lord provided that sacrifice. We know, according to the book of Hebrews, that Abraham, a man of faith, thought and believed with all his heart that if he did carry through in obedience to the Lord, that his son would be raised from the dead. That's an amazing story, isn't it? That's worship. I've been caused to think about what Isaac represented to Abraham. Think about it. Isaac represented Abraham's son, his only son. He represented to him, actually, this is what would have made it so hard, his only son, but he represented his legacy because God had said, it will be through your seed that I will bless your people and your name will be great in all the nations and all the nations will be blessed by you. Here we are 3,000 years later in El Paso, Texas, thousands of miles away from Mount Moriah. And we're talking about Abraham today. The essence of worship is dying to your name in order to raise up the name of the living God. Today, we're going to spend the remaining time looking at the elements of true worship. And please pay careful attention. Unless we have these elements in our worship of the Lord, we have an incomplete consideration in understanding of what genuine worship is. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, if you'll turn there, if you haven't found your place, we will read this episode in the life of the prophet Isaiah himself. 
In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. The first movement in this depiction of the man Isaiah, the prophet who worshipped the Lord, was a vision of God. We see in the Scripture that he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. He also saw some heavenly beings Seraphim stood above him, and they all had six wings each. Perhaps there were only two seraphs. It's possible. And so we see this great vision of worship through the eyes of Isaiah and by the help of the Holy Spirit. There is a content that's very important to this worship. The content includes the picture of who God really is. The thing that gives us understanding as to why we don't really worship the Lord in many cases. We come here or privately and we fail to know who it is whom we worship. He is a sovereign God. That's shown in the fact that He's seated on the throne and He's high and lifted up. He's highly exalted This is characteristic of our God. He is a sovereign God. Our God is in the heavens, the Bible says. He does whatever He pleases. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who controls all events in the universe. He is our Lord. And that's who was seen by this man, Isaiah. But also... He is a holy God. Note the activity of these seraphs. They're standing above the Lord, who is the sovereign. And one might think, why weren't they kneeling before Him? But what we know is they were standing at the ready because they were servants of the Most High God. And we see them covering their eyes with their wings And they're covering their feet with their wings. They had three pairs, of course. And then they are using two to fly. Now, it's worth noting, as you look at verse 2 again, that 
with their wings, they were able to fly. And this word fly is a present tense verb. They were continually covering their eyes because they did not want to get transfixed on the Lord. They wanted to hear the orders of the Lord and they covered their feet indicative of the fact that they knew that it was their feet which also carried them where they were to go to carry out the bidding of this holy God, this sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords whom they served. And so, one call to another, verse 3 tells us, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is the only time in the Old Testament that anything is said three times in succession. That's very important to our understanding of just how holy God is. Because the Hebrew writer, the Jewish scribe, had no way to express the superlative degree like we do. And let me give you an example of this. We say something is good. Then we say something else is better. And then finally we say something is best. Sometimes I listen to people talk besides myself. And when I listen to them sometimes, they'll say something like this. She is one of the best singers in the world. That's a poor use of the superlative degree. Because by its very nature, only one is superlative. Only one's the best. And when these seraphs were singing... And they're singing about the thrice holy God. What they're saying is, He is in a league of His own. He is unique. There is no other God but Him. As we read from Isaiah chapter 45, did you notice in that short section, it's only a sampling of what we could have read in that chapter. But in that short section, God says this about Himself, I am the only God. There is no other God besides Me. He was in effect saying, I'm holy. The word holy, when you look at its origin, as it's used outside and inside the New Testament, That word means to be separated or cut off. And in that sense, God is holy. He is separate from His creation. All the sorts of flaky religions that say we are sparks of the divine, as Hinduism would teach, New Age teaching would teach, some of these popular cultural people teach, that you just have to get in touch with the God in you Because you are God. That's baloney. There's only one true God. And He is Jehovah God. He is holy, holy, holy. This idea of His holiness is the ideal not only of being separated from us in the sense that He is utterly different than we, but it's also the idea of something being in its totality holy. We know that by the way in which grammar is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe things like cisterns or pits in the book of Genesis 14.10. In a valley called Sedim, it was filled with tar pits. And actually the writer, Moses, says with tar 
pits, pits. And that was another way, by repetitive usage of a word, this case in the comparative degree, to say the totality of that particular region was just one of pits. People who went there were in the pits, probably. And then in 2 Kings 25, 15, when Nebuchadnezzar gave word to his marauders when they came into Jerusalem, having destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, they came into the temple and they went and they pilfered the temple and they chose those things which were of greatest value. And when the writer in Second Kings talks about the things which they prized most, it was the instrument or the instruments which were made of gold. And the scripture says were made of gold, gold. They were full gold. 24 karat gold, perhaps. And so we see that when the Scripture talks about God as being holy, 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 He is definitely separate from us. But He's completely holy. The word translated holy here is the word which is found most often in connection with the name of God in what we call the Old Testament. In Psalm 103, the Bible says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. It's interesting that when these heavenly beings, these seraphs, were extolling God, they didn't say, Merciful, 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 or faithful, 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 or love, love, love. All those are attributes of God, correct? And many, many more. But every one of his attributes can be prefaced by the word holy. Because there's no one else in all of the universe who exhibits faithfulness or mercy or love like the one true God who revealed himself to this man in that day and time. So the content of the revelation, the content that led to this kind of worship experience was the content of a sovereign God and a holy God. Do you know God in that way? Perhaps, probably, you have not had such a vision of the Lord. But we have, through the eyes of this man Isaiah, a clear picture of God. And when we open the Word of God and we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and we ask Him to be our teacher, when we come before Him and we say, Teach me to do Your will, O God, let Your good Spirit lead me on level ground. We're crying out to God. We're saying, Lord, teach me. I cannot understand anything in Your Word. I want to know You, Lord. And we know that the subject of the entire Scriptures, according to no less an authority than Jesus Christ Himself, fully God, fully man, by His own description, all of Scripture. And at that point, He was talking about the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament, as we would call it. All the law, all the Psalms, all the prophets, all of those bear witness to me. The Scriptures bear witness to Christ. And the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures also instructs us as we come so we can see the Lord. We can know Him as a sovereign God. We can know Him as a holy God. In fact, 
We cannot know him any other way except as both sovereign and holy. As we go back to the passage, verse 3, the last part of verse 3 says, repeating what Isaiah heard these seraphs say or sing to one another, the whole earth is full of his glory. So we who know the Lord, if we know him, we have recognized him as the thrice holy God. He's different than we are. And also, we are aware that His glory fills the whole universe. The whole universe is filled with His glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, the Bible teaches us in the Psalms. And so, what is the glory of God? Well, simply put, it's God's disclosure of His glory around us. In nature, as I just mentioned, but in people too. People in whom this living God dwells. The context of this vision is very important too. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. It was approximately 740 B.C. was the year that this vision occurred. And that was an important year for any Israeli. Here's why. Because this man, Uzziah, had had a very successful reign and a very long rulership of the people of God. Fifty-two years. I began to calculate backwards. Fifty-two. Puts me in 1967. I remember the year well. And that's been 52 years. Lyndon Baines Johnson was president of the United States of America. I began to count up the presidents. Counting him, there have been ten presidents of the United States in that period of time. And when one whom we love goes out of office, either by fulfilling the maximum number of years as president or being voted out or choosing to bow out, if it was a good president, from our perspective, we have a sense of loss. But can you imagine a leader... For 52 years, and he was a benevolent leader. At the end of his life, he made poor judgment. And he died in disgrace, a leper. But nevertheless, for the vast majority of that time, Isaiah had never known another king. And it was a time of crisis in his life. Just let me say this. Crises are God's opportunity in your life. I have learned more in times of pressure and trouble than I have in times of great peace. And I love peace, believe me. I will not volunteer for any more pressure in my life. But I'm sure I'll have some. Someone say, that's a negative confession. Well, take it for what it is. I'm not looking for trouble. But Jesus says, do not think it odd that you have tribulation in this world. But do not lose heart because I'm near. And when we have a crisis, we're more open to know God. We want to know Him. Some people are embittered by their crises, but when we are in the path of Christ, we want to know Him more. We want to know God. The context was a crisis in his life. That was internal. There was an external context also. It was in the temple. The temple was the place 
where heaven met earth. It was the place which housed the Ark of the Covenant. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant was a solid piece of gold, and it was described as a lid. It was the mercy seat. Once a year, the high priest would go into that Holy of Holies, and he would offer a blood sacrifice to pay for the sins of Israel for the previous year after having confessed those sins on the head of a goat who became a scapegoat and was taken out into the wilderness. And so this is where heaven meets earth. This is where holiness meets that which is profane. And the high priest is representative of God to the people, but the people to God. And he brings that blood as an offering there. And so the temple is the place where God dwells. Do you know we don't have a temple anymore? My theology would say there's going to be a temple built again in Jerusalem and perhaps in my lifetime. But what we do know is, meanwhile, what is the temple of God? Is there any temple of God around? What is it? It's not, yeah, it's not a building made with men's hands. It is something that has been fashioned by God Himself. It's the church of Christ. We just read a little earlier, what do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Therefore glorify God if in your body or with your body. That's talking about me as an individual and you as an individual. In us dwells Christ by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in me. I can't imagine that, that He would want residence in my life, but I know He does take up residence in me for a reason, to set me apart for His use, to glorify God. But now, another way in which this image is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. And the Bible talks about how us, we, are the temple of God. We who make up the church of Jesus. We're just one little piece of the church of Jesus on the west side of El Paso. And uh, even a smaller piece of the whole city or this whole region across the border, all this borderplex area. There are brothers and sisters gathering right now, worshiping the Lord, listening for the voice of God, wanting to respond to God. And we are the temple of God. The Bible says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Is that so that a person like me can feel better about myself because there are more people here to hear me talk on Sunday? Absolutely not. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with our gathering together to worship. Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And when people like us come with a certain degree of expectation, anticipating interaction with the living God, This is not a time that we focus on ourselves. And to do so is to put a wet blanket on the Holy Spirit. We're not focusing on ourselves. If I'm focusing on me, I'm in the wrong. And it's true of all of us. We come with the hope that we will interact with the living God in His temple with His people. The second thing we see in these elements of worship. The first one is a vision of God. 
The second is confession of sin. Look at verse 5. We should read 4 also and make a comment on that verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Now here's the reason you have these two phenomena at work. This trembling of the threshold in the temple, but also the smoke. This is not a show that's being put on. This is acknowledgement on the holy, holy, holy God, the sovereign of the universe, that look, don't come beyond the threshold. This is where I dwell. And you run the risk of violating the holiness of this moment. So be careful. But here's the confession that is given in verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. The word woe is used at least six times in chapter 5, and it's used in relationship to the curses that are coming upon Judah, the land where Uzziah has reigned in prosperity and peace. Everything was going swell economically, militarily, socially. There was harmony, but there was something amiss. The people of the land were also ruined. They were under a curse. And here is Isaiah had been proclaiming the impending curse upon Judah. The wrath of God was coming upon Judah. And all of a sudden he says, I'm one of them. I'm ruined. And the word translated ruined, the root word from which it comes in the Hebrew language is the word silent. I'm silent. He'd made his living talking. I've made my living talking. Forty-two years almost as a pastor. Wow. The Bible says in James chapter 2, let not many of you become teachers because you will be held to a higher standard. That's scary. Isaiah was such a man. And he says, I am ruined. I'm dumbfounded. I have nothing to say. I don't even have the courage to speak again. I'm like a dead man because the word translated ruin, which means silented, is a word which was often associated with a funeral when people quit their mourning by weeping and wailing when it would grow quiet. Have you ever been in a setting like that? When you have lost someone or someone near you has lost someone and there's great grief exhibited through tears and sobbing and crying? Understand... The Bible says we do not grieve like the rest of people, but we do grieve. We who know Jesus. There's nothing shameful about crying when you lose someone. I don't want to be misunderstood. But there comes a time when there's just this deafening silence which comes. That's where Isaiah found himself. He had nothing else to say. And as a part of his confession, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Let me pause here. If we were to go a little further into Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, this is what we would discover. He says, and it's repeated in the book of Mark and in the book of 
Acts, probably the book of Matthew also in the New Testament. And this is what it says. These people honor me with their lips. Talking about these people. But their hearts are far from me. Lip service is abhorrent to God. He'd rather you not pay him any service than to pay him lip service. He's interested in what's in my heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so I have to set apart Christ as Lord in my heart, first and foremost, because man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Now, there comes a time to speak. We're going to see that. But we need to have the right order. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. The Christian life is lived from the inside out, not the outside in. And we have to be careful. Isaiah had lived his, as had the people from the outside in, largely. When you have an experience like his, having seen the King, the Lord of hosts, you can relate to Peter. You remember Peter? This very boisterous, bold man who was the leader, actually, of the apostles. He was the one they all looked up to. Do you remember when he'd been out fishing all night with some of his fishing buddies? And they weren't doing fun fishing. It was for their living. And they came in and... I can imagine Peter was so competitive that he would say, I'm going to catch at least one fish or I'm not going in. Until we catch one, I'm not going in. But he comes back empty-handed. And Jesus is on the shore. They already had a friendship building. And Jesus says to him, Peter, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. This is in the shallows, okay? Just cast your net on the other side of the boat. And I can see Peter rolling his eyes and and in his mind saying, Lord, you're a very good carpenter, but you know very little about fishing the Sea of Galilee. I was raised here, and I've done it all my life. But finally, he just gave in, and he did as he was told. Threw the net over, and what happened? When he began to pull the net up, it was so heavy with fish that it took another boat to come alongside so that that boat in which Peter was would not capsize. And he was astonished. When he got to shore, what did he do? Did he fist pump Jesus? Did he bump chest with Jesus? What did he do? He fell on his face before the Lord. And he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When you look at the encounters that people in Scripture have, you could look at Joshua's encounter, this encounter, John the Revelator's encounter, you see Peter. When they come and recognize who God is in the person of Jesus Christ or in the person of the captain of the Lord of hosts who probably was a presentation of Christ before he became human, then what we see is people fall and they recognize that He is holy and they are not. And in order for us to be saved, we need to have an experience not quite as dramatic, maybe maybe more dramatic than this man, Isaiah, but to know that we're sinners. And we could look elsewhere. 
Take a look at Job's story, another story similar to Isaiah's and to Peter's when they saw the Lord. The Bible says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means blessed are those who know they are spiritually bankrupt, that they can add nothing to what God has done. They cannot contribute one whit to their salvation. And it burdens them because the next beatitude is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For years I wondered, what does that have to do with what's gone before? What does it have to do with anything? What does it mean? Do I have to work up a good cry in order to be comforted? I don't want to get there. But what I came to find out is when we see God like Isaiah saw Him, we know how miserable our lives are in comparison to His. Not comparing ourselves to one another. We're experts at that. We can always find someone who's better than we. And there are some who are so low in their lives that they feel like everybody is better than they are. Look, we're all in the same boat. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we need a relationship with a holy God. That's what Isaiah understood. In the book of Nehemiah, you may remember, Ezra, the scribe, was teaching the people. He had a lot of junior scribes who were helping interpret the Scripture. There were so many people. And as he read from the law of God, the people began to weep. And they were weeping because they knew the sins of their fathers and even some of their own sins had caused them to be sent for 70 years into exile, into a pagan land. And meanwhile, what once was the holy city, the city of David, had been wiped out and the temple had been destroyed. And they were brokenhearted as they sat or stood at the water gate entering into what once was Jerusalem. And then word was given by Ezra, the scribe, to his junior scribes, go tell the people not to weep. Because today is a day of good news. Because today the joy of the Lord is the salvation of these people. Tell them that. So God doesn't want us to live in depression. But there is a sense in which He wants us to come face to face with Him And when we come face to face with Him, we are withered by the recognition of His holiness in contrast to our lack of holiness. The good news is, this is great news, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? And purify us from how much unrighteousness? All of it. But we, like Isaiah, must, having seen the Lord, make confession of our sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and renounces those same sins will find mercy. The Lord is ready to give mercy to anyone who comes in humility and repentance before Him. And we see as we continue this consideration an absolution of a sinner, namely Isaiah. This is what happens. The God of the universe who is holy...
other. He's completely different than we. Amazingly, he wants a personal relationship with you, just like he sought one with this man, Isaiah. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now let's think about this for a moment. What altar did this heavenly being get the coal from? It was from the offering altar for the guilt offering in the temple. And that was the place where God's wrath was satisfied. In Leviticus 6, 12 and 13, the Bible tells us about the offerings which are offered at this particular altar. And the fire never was allowed to go out because there was always need for forgiveness for people who came and confessed. And then in Leviticus 17:11 the Bible talks about this same altar and how blood was shed there. Animals were sacrificed for the sins of people. Of course, that's no longer necessary, is it? Why? Because Jesus Christ is the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world for what purpose? To set apart a people for God's use. Christ became sin on our behalf. God the Father sent Jesus to the cross. God the Father crucified His only Son so that you and I could have forgiveness. We could have a relationship with the Lord that allows us to worship Him as He desires to be worshipped. He absolves us of our sin. As David read from Isaiah 45, Something hit me. I had not planned to share it, but it was so clear. About the false gods that the people of Judah were serving, worshiping. It says, you pray to those gods who cannot save you. The only God, there is only one God. He says it in that section, doesn't he? And it's true. He's not the chief of a pantheon of gods. He is the only God. He is holy, holy, holy. He has provided a way for us to be saved. And all we have to do is pray to Him in humility. And He always answers that prayer. Because the Scripture says it's His will for us to be saved. If we pray and say, Lord, save me. I need to know You, Lord. I beg You to save me. We will be absolved of our sin. In verse 7, look at it again. When this seraph touched his lips with the coal, what does the Scripture say? Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Taken away. This is reminiscent of Psalm 103 which says, As far as the east is from the west, so far have your transgressions been removed from you. That's as far as you can get, isn't it? It's a picture of what I mentioned earlier, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make payment for the sins of Israel for the entire previous year. And so, 
It's taken away. The scapegoat would take away the sins that were confessed over that scapegoat. And your sin is forgiven. You know what the word forgiven literally means? Covered. Have you ever been to a restaurant and someone was hosting you and the waiter or server comes to your table and hands you the bill? Not you, but your host. Hands the host the bill. And then your boast maybe is a high roller. And he pulls, pulls out a, a wad of $100 bills because y'all ate a lot of good food at that restaurant. And he puts it in the hand of the server and says, I think that will cover it. Doesn't even look at the bill. But he knows he's given enough to cover it. When Christ died for you and me, he covered it all. All of it. But what we have to understand is, in this picture... There is no evidence that this man Isaiah contributed anything to his salvation. He just had a mouthful of woe, unclean lips. He felt so unworthy, and he was, and so are we. But God is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world our sin in order to make us right with God. The last thing that is an element of true worship is a commission of the holy servant. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. There's not much that needs to be added to that. What happens is the moment We come to a place of humility, recognizing our abject need for God and noticing how sinful we are compared to His holiness. And we feel like we're just doomed. The Lord swoops in and He does for us what He did for this man Isaiah. And He gladly gives us forgiveness. If we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. That's what the Scripture says. And then we're set on a course of usefulness to glorify the Lord. To let our light shine in such a way that others will see the glory of God. Doing stuff for people in the name of the Lord. You don't even have to say, I'm doing this for you in the name of the Lord and to do something. Just in your heart, do it in the name of the Lord and you'll begin to shine. Do you ever run across people who are just sort of radiant? People who know the Lord, who have seen the Lord, who commune with the Lord, just like Moses when he came out of the tent of the meeting and his face shone and it frightened the people. Just like all these biblical figures, if we seek the Lord... We will find Him when we seek Him with all our heart. And we'll shine. And then people will want to know. I want you to consider an experiment this week. When you leave here today, first of all, having made sure that you are in league with the Lord, you're trusting Him fully for your salvation. Your joy will bubble over when that happens because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so when you do that, 
people will take note of it. And they'll say, what's up with you? Why are you the way you are? 1 Peter 3.15 gives a perfect answer. I have set apart Christ as Lord in my heart. And the Bible says when you do that, people will want to know why you are the way you are. Why you have hope. Try it out. See what God does. Would you bow your heads? If you've never trusted Christ before, you've just been considering it. Perhaps the Lord has spoken to you this morning. And we trust that you will respond in submission to Him. Acknowledging that you are a person who has a lot of uncleanness in your heart. And you want the Lord to take it away. Would you just confess that to the Lord right now? Just tell Him, Lord, please take control of me. Lord, we pray that the people whom You have earmarked as this being the day of salvation, their personal salvation, that they would receive You today. Would you look here? If you prayed that prayer in sincerity, what I do know is the Lord heard your prayer and He has given you a fresh start in your life. Don't let this day go by without sharing that with someone else. With Dan, with me, with Sam, with somebody else here, Eric, somebody. Share it with one of the elders. Share it with us. We will delight in the Lord with you. Amen? God bless you. You have a good week.